duplex met them at the barriers. He was so deeply dejected at the reverse of the French soldiers that for one brief moment, he mediated suicide. But a movement on his horse caused him to look up. The sight of the solid ramparts surmounted by the proud banner of France reassured him, and he resolved, he resolved to live, and if he must die, then to die in the defense of his post. Hello and welcome everyone to the second episode of our weekly podcast, India Colonized. And in today's episode, we are going to talk about Francois-Joseph Duplex, the Governor General of French Indian Settlements in India, and a person who was rarely discussed, a man who was rival to our Robert Clive and a man who was also responsible for the rise and to a certain extent the fall of French settlements in India. We discuss his life, his achievements and his rise in political power and his fall. And without further ado, let's get started. François Joseph Duplex Born on the first day of the year 1697 in France, his father was a former general of taxes, someone who collected taxes on the behalf of state. A man who was very narrow-minded and a hard moneymaker, Duplex recalls him to be a stern despot in the family circle. He always had great hope for his son and he aimed constantly to make him thorough, to make him a man of business and someone who rigidly prescribed to a higher culture. But all his efforts were in vain. As so often happens in similar cases, the forbidden fruit was eagerly snatched by the boy who was a dreamer and had enthusiastic temperament. Duplex, as a young boy, revelled in the world of ideas, devoted himself to studies which were very remote from bookkeeping. He grew in the world of music instead, which throughout his career was his soulness and in some sense his inspirer. He grew with love for the fine arts and a taste for severe studies of mathematics and fortification. Such stubbornness, his father believed, required sharp discipline and as soon as he was 18 and in his prime age, his father had sent him to sea on board of an East Indian man. From the first return of his voyage, he came with immense information, something the domestic oracle called sound ideas on trade and maritime affairs. Duplex's father was a large shareholder in the French East India Company, and in the year 1720, he was able to procure a seat for his son in the Council of Pondicherry. His first post was a nominal and feebly paid position of a war commissioner. Lenoir, the governor of Pondicherry, was a shrewd but a kind man. He was well-versed with Indian politics and quickly discerned the capacity of this young counsellor and employed him under the manner which would prepare him for his career. Curious as Duplex was, under Lenoir's tuition, he began to explore the archives of the company. And quickly, he was entrusted with drafting dispatches to France and other Indian rulers. While Duplex had commercial training in his earlier voyage to Pondicherry, None of this was thrown away to waste. The French East India Company's commerce was really in a bad taste. The moment 
and the most elementary principle of political economy was ignored by these so-called men of business. The commercial agents, both in Pondicherry and Europe, were content to purchase Indian goods with French gold, but they neglected both the introduction of Western commodities into India and also similar introduction of traffic in other Asian countries. This led to their business and profits to remain feeble and small. The company men, however, were not forbidden from carrying their own trade in the country. Duplex made most of this opening. He got a lot of money in return for the European goods that he had sold in India and asked his father to engage in a business which gave him double the satisfaction. He was satisfied for having received a good dividend as well as for having been a good son. For many years, Duplex continued to amass wealth while making comprehensive studies in political situation in India. M. Hammett even goes to the extent of asserting that Duplex was already dreaming of India's conquest and annexing it for the French Empire. Come 1730, he was appointed the governor of Chandernagar in Bengal. This particular settlement was more dilapidated than Pondicherry, but Duplex writes that it was a sphere that suited him. His influence was already beginning to reflect in the development of the settlement's commercial activity. He believed the place was very well suited for both internal and foreign traffic of trade. When Duplex arrived at Chandernagar, only five ships engaged in carrying trade with India. Soon after Duplex had arrived, he was able to muster not less than 72 ships engaging in trade not only with India, but also Arabia and China. His new enterprise and settlement of purchasing vessels and goods and sending them off to other remote Asiatic ports along through the river highways of Hooghly and Ganga and other countries brought a great deal of joy among the settlers. These settlers were freely assisted with Duplex's money and he created such an efficient system that at the end of 10 years, French warehouses supplied to many of the great cities of India, including up until Tibet. In 1741, this governor married a remarkable woman who influenced not only in his life, but in his career as well. A widow born to the French father and Indo-Portuguese mother and the scion of the historic houses de Castro. Madame Duplex was born and educated in India. She is said to have been a fascinating woman with the strength of character and intelligence for diplomatic tactics. Her proficiency in native language were invaluable to Duplex. She was very supportive of her husband's ambitions. Madame Duplex always reminded and remained beside Duplex throughout his ascent and descent. She always warmly embraced and actively promoted husband's political designs and they had mutual and deep devotion for each other. Sidney J. Owen writes about their union of this brilliant Frenchman and the accomplished duration was what he believed was not unlikely that which existed later between Warren Hastings and his foreign wife. The same year of his marriage brought him more fortunes as he was appointed as the governor of Pondicherry. 
This gave him supreme and complete control over all p- French possessions in India, including Chandernagar in Bengal, Karakal in Koramandal, Mahi on the Malabar coast, and more. His office is provided with the council of five members, who throughout his tenure have appeared to have been very submissive to duplex. These members were nominated by the company through the royal sanction of the royal commission which ran in the king's name. To understand the very less explored French administrative establishment in India, we need to understand how power was divided among each of these settlements. All of these settlements, each of them had a governor of their own, and these governors had their own councils. However, all of them were bound to obey the orders of the rulers of Pondicherry. Let us now not get into the history of the French of East India Company, but I find it necessary to mention that just like the British East India Company, even the French East India Company were limited by their aspirations, by their directors who were anxious themselves to keep calm and to avoid any proceedings which may compromise on their primary objective of trade. Whatever may have been Duplex's ulterior motive of creating an empire in India, his immediate attention was shifted towards Europe, where a war seemed inevitable between France and England. A conflict arising out of the dispute on the question of Austrian succession, his first step was typical to his character. He knew too well about the might of his military resources and the logistics of receiving timely aid from France, so he decided to strengthen his position among the Indian rulers. His predecessor, Governor General Dumas, had obtained from a Mughal emperor the title of Nawab Dumas, a title which would also be granted to his successor. Duplex assumed this title with much pomp, even impressive to an Indian mind. Although he began to look a little ridiculous in the eyes of the French settlers of Pondicherry, who were obviously unaware of the objectives of such grand ceremony and also skeptical of its advantages. He then came to Bengal, paraded what Sidney Owen calls semi-barbaric grandeur. He visited the members of state, he met them and he did the same on his return to Karnatic. He flattered himself and he was regularly engaged in the hierarchy of the empire. It was as though he had taken an Indian Peership. He was considered to be a divan. Once returned to Pondicherry, Duplex devoted himself to reduce the expenditure and to control civil functionaries in order to increase and organize and train his little army to complete the defense of Pondicherry. Duplex put humongous efforts in devising and superintending the construction of defenses of Pondicherry and he laid a great stress on completing this task through his own purse. Quite much of the expenditure of these fortifications was paid from his own pockets. Meanwhile, he received a very discouraging order from his employers from France. He was ordered to reduce the expenditure by half and to stop spending any more money on the fortification. Ironically, in the same letter, he was praised for his efforts for putting an for his prudence as war seemed more and more imminent. Finding himself in crossroads to obey the orders would mean a fatal blow to French interest in India, and to transgress them would be fatal to himself. 
he found himself in dilemma. But he chose a middle ground. And at the end, he paid off the debt that he had incurred for military preparations when Pondicherry was attacked by Marathas. And now from his own purse again, he allotted 500,000 French pounds, one half of which he gave for the defences and the other half he used for the he used to order two vessels which he dispatched with justifying why it was necessary and stating urgent need for military reinforcements and the aid of a fleet. After a long delay, he received a disheartening reply. England and France were now at war. But this time, instead of sending duplex reinforcement, they asked him to conclude neutrality between the commercial settlements of England and France. The letter also mentioned that if the neutrality settlement was not feasible in such a case, La Bourdin, the governor of the Isles of France and Bourbon, was dispatched through the fleet to Pondicherry. Duplex feared that Mr. Morse, the then governor of the English fort of St. George and Madras, would not consent to remain neutral, which only made Pondicherry defenseless. Duplex was scared. He feared that the large English fleet cruising in the eastern seas would now attack Pondicherry. And he was also getting a little skeptical of La Bourdin's arrival to India. In this moment of emergency, Duplex reminds Nawab Anwaruddin about the long-standing friendship of French settlements and his province. He invoked his friendship and sought protection from English aggression on Pondicherry. By asking the Nawab to forbid any attack on Pondicherry by English. The English, who thought that they too might need the Nawab's protection if the French grew stronger in the future, assured the Nawab that there shall not be any such aggressions on their behalf. Tuplex, meanwhile, dispatched his single vessel with a pressing respect request to La Bordans to hasten to relieve him. Le Bourdonnet hastened to his relief, a remarkable man that he was, and he made extraordinary excursions to replace the fleet Duplex had sent him, and he re-equipped it and armed it for naval service with all the men available. He displayed wonderful versatility in organizing all the Department of Arms and restoring their efficiency when it was impaired by a hurricane at Madagascar. As he made up his fleets toward Pondicherry, he had an indivisive action with Admiral Peton near Nekpatnam and defeated the English fleet the next day, making the coast clear for his way to Pondicherry. Duplex now had only two objectives. One was to defeat English fleet and the second to capture Madras. Ravokhdiane stated that without the protection of a fleet, Madras may fall easily. Assured this, Duplex reinforced his vessels with heavy guns and sent liberal gifts to the Nawab so that he would withhold his protection he had promised to English. The Bukhdene had other plans he felt that after taking Madras, he should load his fleet with the merchandise in Madras, restore the town to the enemy on the payment of a ransom. Duplex naturally objected to the strange proposal. When England and France were at war and when the governor of Madras had refused to remain neutral in India during this war, 
it was preposterous a proposition by Le Bourdonnais. Le Bourdonnais now seemed to be a changed man. He was accustomed to command, but not to be commanded. He could not brook an equal and, was, and he resented instruction no matter how gently they were communicated and how justified they were. He appeared more inclined to act at his own whim. The English fleet left disgracefully before Labohtene made an attack on Madras. Madras surrendered easily without any resistance. Now, with the fall of Madras, Duplex pronounced that he would be obliged to promise the city to Anwardin, the Nawab. He intended to destroy the fortifications of Madras first before he could surrender. However, Labodene had already settled a treaty with the English demanding the prisoners of war be given back and a ransom in order for exchange for Madras against the will of Duplex. But the pending negotiation was broken when a violent hurricane destroyed half of Labourdene's ships and disabled the rest. He had to leave Pondicherry and he never returned again. Throughout his life, he maintained that he acted loyally and that Duplex was the one who acted tyrannically. Such was the quarrel between Governor-General and his mutinous admiral. With Labourdene gone, Duplex removed the unauthorized treaty and he promised the Nawab of giving up Madras to him. But while this dispute arose and an inevitable delay was created by Duplex, Nawab turned into an enemy of the French and an ally to the English. The position was now critical. The French fleet had disappeared, the English fleet was intact and now threatened to return. Furious Nawab sent a considerable amount of force to besiege Madras and take it back from French. While to defend the city of Pondicherry, there were only 2,000 Europeans and 4,000 sepoys. There was a sense of desperation at the seat of government, but Duplex saw clearly that the case was not hopeless. Duplex believed that by a bold and a sudden blow on the Nawab's face, he would be forced to change sides and for this task, he chose Pardes, a veteran Swiss officer, and dispatched him with just 200 Europeans and 700 Indian soldiers to attack the camp of Muzaffar Khan. Muzaffar Khan was a celebrated war general and the eldest son of Nawab Anwaruddin. All along, he continued to negotiate with the Nawab and the French governor of captured Madras was ordered to remain strictly on defence and not to carry out offence. Madras was besieged. French sustained absolutely no loss and Muzaffar Khan, on hearing Pardes forces began to march and retired to St. Thome. Duplex panned on an attack on the exposed position of Muzaffar Khan. Then, a dense mass fugitives quickly dislodged into wild panic and rushed towards Arcot. These victories were proclamation to the world that Europeans were now destined successors of the proud Mughal and the fiery Maratha. The victories were even more memorable as they put the native Indian rulers at awe. Duplex now attempted to reduce the fort of St. David and sent a strong force against it. But the fort was defended by a very inferior officer whose failure in defending the fort was a signal of Pardes' success.
He posted his men near the fort and on the south side of the river of the fort. The troops, instead of holding in their defense positions, rushed into the river, crossed it and faced the Nawab's army instead. The artillery pieces could not be pushed and moved through the water, resulting in the losses for the French badly. But Duplex was determined. He made successful negotiations with the Nawab, who agreed to make peace with the French and abandon the English. His son Muzaffar Khan came to Pondicherry and was received with great honor and pomp. He then planned another assault on Fort St. David and entrusted Pardes to take out the task. Just as the gallant commander was going to reoccupy the walled garden of St. David, the English fleet signaled and he was fain to retreat at the outlook was most gloomy. Duplex, having hastily summoned assistance from the French island, was relieved by the arrival of some ships which succeeded in reinforcing Madras with 300 men. But then from the fear of the English fleet, they too retired hastily. There were soon news that arrived from Europe, which broke away Governor General's soul. The most formidable flotilla that had now appeared in the eastern waters and was on its way carrying a strong body of troops which was commanded by Admiral Boswan of England. Admiral was given the charge to besiege Pondicherry. The French East India Company directors asked Duplex to put up a good defence, but they did not send him any kind of help. Duplex resolved to attack Kudlore, which lay over against the fort of St. David. He hoped that if this was successful, then he would be able to avoid the landing of English fleet in Kudlore. He would be successful in breaking down their communications with the fort and that he would be able to make a base for himself in order to capture the fort. All these plans were to shatter when Major Lawrence, who had arrived from England as the commander of all of English East India Company's forces, defeated this movement of duplex with a plain simple strategy. During the day, when he sighted the French, he took off the guns from Kudlor as if he was only intending to defend St. David. But as night came, he quietly replaced the guns and the French was warmly received with bullets and bombardments. The French fled back in confusion to Pondicherry. At this moment, Duplex had been so dejected and he had seen so many barriers and was deeply depressed with the reversal of his fate that for one brief moment he thought about committing suicide. But a moment of this was brought against when his horse moved which he was sitting on and then made him look up at the sight of the solid ramparts that surrounded with proud banner of France. This reassured him brought him a new wave of confidence in him. The English now began to appear in overwhelming force. Duplex had well protected the town of Pondicherry with his new walls that he had built. He was well provided with artillery and he hoped that he could cope with the enemy's fire or even overpower it. English Admiral was commander-in-chief on land as well as at sea. He passed through with his forces in the river without any serious casualties. 
the English were well prepared and killed many officers and soldiers. Among them was the much celebrated Pardies. In spite of the serious loss and partial demolition of the bastion, the siege went on, but with little progress. The superiority of Duplex fire was pronounced. Madame Duplex, in secret relation with the native soldiers, was able to cause mischief in the convoys of the opposition. With a failed attempt on land, the Admiral ordered a general bombardment by his fleet, which lasted for 12 hours consistently, but the only casualty it could cause was the death of one old woman. Around the land, the French were able to repel the British rigorously. They overpowered the British and the monsoon began to set in. The British mortality rate in their camps was high. Bosquan, therefore, suddenly broke up the siege, retired, leaving his antagonist the impossible honour of having, with a very small force and by his own engineering skill, baffled the most important European ornament that had ever engaged in Indian warfare. Duplex's victory was of course announced far and wide and it reached the native rulers of India. And he received very florid compliments for that. But what came next was the Peace of Aix-la-Chapel. Soon it restored Madras to English. However mortifying in this respect to the French Governor-General was left to free to persecute his ambitions and enterprises among the native rulers. How Duplex was able to manoeuvre the future conflicts that derailed him is a story for another episode. His engagement in the Second Carnatic War where he faces Robert Clive and as way makes his way through the maze of Indian politics between the Nizam of Hyderabad and the Nawab of Karnataka's fight through succession, using these opportunities to his favour and the same to get back at English, but not to very much of his success. He was very weakly supported by his company and Duplex, after a series of victories, began to saw a tragic fall as the English overpowered the French territories in India. Duplex's ambition eventually brought him to knees. His ambitions were never well supported nor well equipped. Towards the close of the Second Carnatic War, the French East India Company had to suspend its trade and by now their funds were absorbed in war expenses. The ministers were anxious to make truce with England and feared that Carnatic struggle might provoke a European war. To continue this confrontation in contest seemed to be French, India, French East India Company an indefinite vista of expense and parallel without any advantage. There was no other option but to recall Duplex from India and it seemed essential for he could not be trusted to abide by what was being laid as rules by the directors. Whatever may be the thought about necessary reason on removal of duplex, there can be only one opinion of the way which this removal was brought about. How the French commissioner conducted himself with him and how the government and the company were seriously afraid that someone like duplex could, who had long ruled as a master might refuse to relinquish his authority without any struggle. Godhu, who was accordingly provided with 2,000 soldiers of force just to arrest Duplex, 
only if this force was provided a little earlier during the conquest of Carnatic, France would have made it to victory. He was sent with an order signed by the king, which empowered Gaudieu to arrest the governor-general and securely imprison him on the first vessel that would set sail for France. This was an absolute mandate. There was, however, a second order that was sent in case Duplex should submit quietly. Gaudieu could arrest Duplex if he judged it was necessary, and Madame Duplex and her daughter would share the same fate. None of the letters that were written by the directors of Gaudieu used any such word in any way that would make a person who's reading them suspicious about what was the real issue for Duplex to being called. Duplex was also deceived to such an extent that he writes in his memoir that there was nothing suspicious about being asked to present himself before the king and that he was that he thought that this must be in recognition of his contribution and that it is such an honor to have been asked to present himself in front of the queen. Gaudio sent a letter stating his nature of work in Pondicherry to Duplex. Excited Duplex arrived on the shore to receive his old friend and benefactor. Duplex arrived surrounded by guards and other military display. When he met Gaudio on the bank, he offered him his hand. Gaudio bowed stiffly and kissed it and presented a letter, a letter from the King of France, revealing that Duplex and his family was to immediately be recalled to France. The nature of the letter was such, uh, even before Duplex could re recover from his astonishment or ask any question, the commissioner produced a royal mandate. The mandate revoked the Governor-General's commission and the second mandate demanded that he give a detailed report on the company's affair. It felt like a huge punch in the face of Duplex. But Duplex calmly pursued these documents, but reports mentioned that he began to grow pale. He declared that he was ready to obey the king's command and asked if his dear friend Godhu had any respect, I mean, any request of his own that Duplex could favor. A long silence ensued. Gaudio asked Duplex to summon the council. The news spread fast. The settlers gathered in a crowd across the council chamber in Gaudio, and he ordered his guards to disperse the crowd. Gaudio seated himself in the center of the chair in the center of the table and motioned Duplex to sit beside him. He solemnly recited the instructions while Duplex showed great restraint. Duplex heard all the instructions that were sent from France with attentiveness. And at the close of the meeting, he rose up and extended his arm up and exclaimed, Long live the king! The cry was taken up by others and he left the council chamber. He went into the chambers of his dear friend and poured his heart and bitterness of his soul into him. The same evening, Gaudieu assumed the command as the Governor-General of all French possessions in India. Gaudieu sought eagerly but vainly to malign Duplex's personal character by bringing up charges against him of corruption. Thus, this false, cruel man reduced his old friend to poverty and beggary. The melancholy close of Duplex was as such 
that when he was leaving and embarking on the vessel leaving to France, for once, for one last time, he put his eyes on the shores of Pondicherry and remembered how that land had nourished him from a young child and a boy and had brought him to such a status. And now that it was beginning to be the reason for his fall, he was received cordially and publicly expressed the sympathies of the settlers. He was extremely happy in his arrival in France, where he was greeted with popular enthusiasm. He was also well received by the ministers. For a moment, he began to hope that he might be reinstated as the governor general again. But when he reached the courts, he was frowned upon by the judges, slighted by the ministers, harassed by the creditors, insulted by the officers who were formerly under his authority, exposed to popular ridicule as a political charlatan. He was dejected. What was worst was his treatment that he received by his old employers. He could not even obtain any adjudication for his claims over the company. The death of Madame Duplex in November 1756 left him unspeakably desolate. His close aide and his soulmate had left him. In, in a moment where he was being shredded in his political career and even in his personal life. Two years later, he found a new love. He remarried and apparently happily, but his second wife had little to no fortune. Duplex and his family became more and more impoverished. He was at last even threatened with execution and also expulsion from his retreat. In a state of extreme exhaustion, he composed a last goodbye summary of his services, his wrongs and his fall. After writing this, in three days later, he expired on 10th November 1763. Duplex was not only a remarkable, but he was a really great man. The general impression is this, and it is conveyed with an attentive study of his history. The attitude, boldness, and magnitude of his political conception, his versatile ability displayed in application to commerce, politics, and war, his inexhaustible fertility of resources, his high moral courage, his energy and perseverance, his devotion of ample fortune to public services. He inspired an unhesitating confidence in both Europeans and natives alike. His loyal and unconditional surrender to authority and submission to whatever verdict that was given to him, even though it cast him down from the pinnacle of power under the feet of one of the most meanest and most worthless men, he surrendered. And his dignified demeanor after his resignation are all tokens that speak the presence of a king amongst men. Duplex was a public-spirited man, both in his life and his aims. He was seriously devoted to the interests of the company and he understood them as service for the king, even though the king was Louis XV. He was known to be a man with brilliant imagination 
and the skill in making the most out of their minimum resources and material and in organizing and equipping various departments of the army and improving and disciplining the tone of, of the wretched recruits of France. He was a mean master of operation of both war, but he was also a strategist and a tactician. His insights were clear, comprehensive. His suggestions were generally apposite and his warnings prophetic. He was not only a great man, but he was an excellent statesman. He had brilliant imagination, consummate dexterity, tearing energy, and indomitable will. Duplex in his lifetime was deeply misunderstood and underrated. Whatever his faults were, he certainly deserves better fate than to be held up as a clever but vainglorious and defected charlatan. Thank you everyone for listening to today's podcast. That brings us to the end of the second episode of our weekly podcast, India Colonized. As we promised you in our previous episode to give you one suggestive reading to read on a topic that we covered in the podcast. Today's suggestive reading is Duplex by Colonel John Bidulph. The book is available on archive.org. Please feel free to go check out and read the book. The book is fairly 200 pages. And if you have any questions or queries or suggestions, please leave us a mail on the email ID written down in the description. And do consider following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and show us a lot of love. Thank you so much. Have a good day.